BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ben, you're set up. You're good to go, right? I am good to go. Oh, thank God. All right, your Ben Jarofsky uh, show for Thursday, January 26th. is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink. They talk about reefer. It's illegal. All right, it's legal in Illinois these days. And so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A. V is in victory, S-K-Y. It is Thursday, January 26th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Chances Retreat Thursday, and here's why. Well, I'll tell you why, ladies and gentlemen. The story is told on the front page of my beloved Bright One, Home Delivery Every Day. I'm going to show my distinguished guest that it really is a newspaper that I'm reading. And like all my distinguished guests, she's amazed. Like, damn, this guy's so old, he still reads a newspaper? As opposed to reading on his phone. Uh, anyways, my beloved bright one, Chicago Sun-Times, grander opening is the headline. Grander opening is the headline. And there's a picture of Alderwoman Emma Mitz and Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And uh, it looks like Walter Burnett is in this photograph. Chris Taliaferro is in the photograph. A bunch of dignitaries are in the photographs. Fire uh, department chieftains, police department chieftains, et cetera, and so forth, because the city finally got around to doing the quote-unquote grand opening of the new police and fire training academy in Humboldt Park. Uh, what is it, 700 North Kilbourne Avenue. Uh, and I'm like, wow, man. It's like, what a twist and turn in, in the city of Chicago. You know what I mean? Nobody, everybody has forgotten. There's just like amnesia in the city of Chicago. You know, you're an obsessive political junkie. You follow things. Uh, and as soon as one fight is over, another fight comes on. And the next thing you know, a full year has gone by. And then two years have gone by. And three years have gone by. And four. And then you forget the fight that happened eight years ago, which was a big time fight, politically speaking. Not in the city council, but uh, outside the city council. Uh, and that is when Mayor Rahm, remember him? Yeah, you voted for him in Chicago. I, I know you're a little embarrassed about that, but you did vote for him twice. Uh, anyway, Mayor Rahm thought it would be a good idea to spend about $100 million or so, TIF dollars, TIF dollars, property tax dollars. They raise your property taxes every time they create a TIF, and they spend the property tax dollars uh, when they actually approve a project. Uh, although they lie about the raising the property taxes. So uh, he thought it would be a good idea to spend uh, TIF dollars building this police and fire training uh, in uh, Humble Park. The local alderwoman, Emma Mitz, supported it. It uh, looked like it was sailing through the city council when uh, Chance the Rapper uh, took it up as an issue. Now, there were activists who were against it. I'm just, I'm, I don't mean to minimize the role they were playing, but when Chance the Rapper, high-profile celebrity, Guy's been on like a Saturday Night Live. A guy who's bridged the world between old people of my generation and young people of my uh, distinguished guests' generation who's coming up. Like, that's a real celebrity. Like when a baby boomer knows someone that a millennial knows, that's like a real, that's called crossover. You get what I'm saying? Like, whoa, even a baby boomer, ah, I've heard of Chance the Rapper. He's famous. And so Chance the Rapper, uh, came out against the police and fire academy, suddenly all the media in the city of Chicago felt compelled to cover it. <laughs> I mean, you know, they might have half-heartedly covered it. You know, I would have written about it because it was TIF funding. But come on, other than this is a good idea, everybody seems to support it, that typical kind of coverage. But with Chance, they're like, oh, my God, it's breaking news. A celebrity cares about an issue in the city of Chicago. Then we must care about it. So we actually showed up at the city council meeting Chance the Rapper did to denounce this as well. He should as well. He should put aside from notion, 
put aside the notion for the moment, whether the city needs a new police and fire academy or whether uh, the police and fire academy, this is the most important point, the training that goes in there, police, particularly with the police, will help us deal with police community relations. That's what really counts. It's like, what's the training going on? Put all that aside for the moment. The funding mechanism, a TIF, <laughs> TIFs, they're not supposed to be used for things like police and fire academies, ladies and gentlemen. They're supposed to be used for things that generate more property tax revenue. Well, this is tax-exempt land. Now, I realize when I said that, I've lost half my audience because it's like Geeksville. Wait a minute. You're taking a deep dive, Ben, and you've lost me. It's so confusing. People always tell me whenever I talk about tips. It's I'm, I can't follow you. It's too complex. It's too confusing. <laughs> Meanwhile, their property taxes go up. They go, what's going on? And they go call their alderman and yell at their alderman. Something my distinguished guest should get ready for uh, if she is elected. Oh, I'm hinting at who the distinguished guest is. Actually, everybody knows because you can see the caption on the show. So anyway, uh, yeah, nobody talked about the impact uh, on the property taxes, which are considerable. This is a gentrifying area. So you now just took tax property. You just took property off the tax rolls. So everybody else is going to have to pay more for this thing. Years going forward because you took it off the tax rolls, now owned by the city of Chicago. It was privately owned, and now the city owns it. Good job. Heck of a job, Rom, from your perch in Japan or wherever it is that you've gone to leave us. Anyway, uh, the picture, chance is not, of course, in the picture. Chance has largely retreated uh, from the scene, politically speaking, in Chicago. He endorsed a candidate in 2019, as I recall. Amara Enya was her name. Uh, she did not make the runoff. He dragged in Kanye West. This was kind of embarrassing. We consider this history. Nobody wants to talk about Kanye West anymore. Those are the days when he was Kanye West. Uh, and uh, he now has since become sort of what? The preeminent spokesman for white supremacy and Nazism in the United States. So nobody wants to talk about his brief foray into Chicago politics. I do not blame Chance the Rapper for having sort of left the scene, politically speaking, in the city of Chicago. If you take the deep dive and stay in the city of Chicago, you're going to like wind up pounding your head against a wall. If you want to like promote social justice, if you want to promote legitimate change that helps people that really need help the most, you're going to find yourself up against this powerful self-interest groups that really have strong control over in this city. They used to control editorial boards of both newspapers. So they, when, when they're done writing the editorials, they would turn like the people who are fighting for justice into somehow or other, I don't know, like people who are trying to manipulate the scene for evil ends. It's what they've kind of done with the Chicago Teachers Union. You know, like Lori Lightfoot the other day uh, told Brandon Johnson that if he gets in charge of, becomes mayor of the city, Chicago's going to be chaos at the public schools. Like it hasn't been chaos for the last four years. Hello, anybody follow Mayor Lori Lightfoot's policy when it came to COVID? When they decided to open the schools and didn't have masks or thermo thermometers, anything, you know, to take kids' temperatures, just go get back in that classroom. So anyway, I do not blame Chance the Rapper. He had that moment. Uh, I don't think he deterred any alderman from voting against it. I believe Carlos Ramirez Rosa was the only alderman who voted against this deal. It was a few years back. I have to go back and look to be certain, but I'm pretty sure that was the case. But all the Alderman Rose, like, oh, my God, a celebrity. They wanted a picture taken with him. They took pictures of him. And he left. I don't blame him. It is a long haul, ladies and gentlemen, in this city. And so many of the people who run for office, they tell you what they know you want to hear. And in the back of their minds, they're thinking, I'm going to do what I want to do when I'm in. I'm just reading a book now uh, about a, a novel about a writer, totally manipulative, evil, diabolical guy. It's called uh, The Ladder to the Sky. It has nothing to do with Chicago, nothing to do with politics. It's all about uh, the world of literature and how writers, they, they are kind of like aldermen. Like, they're kids in high school, actually, this they, they they pretend they're happy when their friend is wins, but really they get angry and mad because it means they're not doing as well as they would like to. So it's really a, a study of human beings. Uh, and in many regards, uh, Chicago politics is like that. I remember Lori Lightfoot telling me absolutely everything I wanted to hear at the hideout when she came and uh, did the interview with me and Mick. And one of the things was that she denounced this police fire academy. 
said that money shouldn't have been spent on it like that. And now here she is on the front page, my beloved bright one, with the ribbon and the scissors. Big smile on her face. <laughs> it's a long haul, ladies and gentlemen. It's a long, long struggle, and I do not blame Chance the Rapper from having decided, you know what? These people are crazy. I am out of here. All right. So enough on that. I am now going to ask my distinguished guest to turn on her microphone and um, uh, begin the conversation. Uh, Denali Dasgupta, who's running for Alderwoman in the 39th Ward. And is uh, this is her first appearance on the show, though. Denali, I feel I've talked to you on the phone like <laughs> enough. Like it, I've been on the show three times. Uh, so officially, welcome to my humble little podcast. Thank you so much, Ben. I am such a fan, as you know, um, from our phone conversation uh, and ran into my kitchen waving the phone with you on it in front of my entire family. Uh, and the first time we talked and, and continuing now, you continue to make digs about my age. But I am a 39-year-old woman. I have a 17-year-old child. I almost have an adult child. So I think you got to lay off me a little bit on the, <laughs> the young lady stuff. Well, you're young compared to me, okay? <laughs> uh, and you look a lot younger than I do. And uh, I must admit, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I got to give a shout out to my um, good, my old friend, Keith Kelleher, uh, who lives, I think, in the 39th Ward or very close to it. Uh, and he has been enthusiastically sending me uh, links to uh, your website and um, statements, uh, uh, videos of you making uh speeches etc and so forth and uh so shout out to keith for telling me about denali uh and, and in the spirit of transparency and, and accountability which is what we're all about here keith is my campaign chair i did not know that no i thought i told you that yes keith you is my campaign chair young keith kelleher i did not know i, know. Uh, I sit here just i would have said it anyway even if i didn't know <laughs> um so, all right. Why don't you? Uh, you're, it's a, a first-time candidate uh, running in the 39th ward. So, why don't you give folks a sense of who you are and what the ward is, where the ward is, and then we'll take it from there on uh, your view of the issues. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So, like you said, my name is Denali Desgupta. My first-time candidate, but I like to say I have been in, around, and sometimes against municipal government for roughly 20 years. Um, and I think there's a lot of really interesting reasons that I'm doing this. Um, I will say today is India Republic Day. I'm not, you can't see it, but I'm repping this great T-shirt. Um, and I bring that up because India Republic Day is the celebration of the signing of the, Ind the Indian Constitution. And the purpose of that is to establish a democratic, secular, pluralist country. Um, and so that really ties in well with what I want to talk about today, which is participatory democracy. I am running because I love democracy. I love governments. I love municipal public finance. Um, but you kind of go down some of those wormholes, especially like on Twitter or something like that. And you you find people who love the idea of, you know, being technocratic about these things. And I really love these things because I feel like these are, you know, life's class projects. We're all doing these things together. It's a struggle. It's supposed to be hard. Uh, and, and committing to the difficulty of it is really important. And so I'm running for alderman because I think our community needs a change. We'll be talking a little bit, but, you know, hopefully not too much because it's about getting me some name recognition <laughs> about the current alder. And the current alder comes from from a generation or group of folks. And actually, um, you had Carlos and Rosanna on your, your show last year, and they said something really great about a bunch of people who anchor on issues, but without a power analysis. So you're focused on the policies and the services and the whatever, and you're not seeing the big picture. You're not seeing it over time. You're not seeing how it affects different people. You're not putting humanity and perspective in it. And that is probably the best good faith assessment of my opponent that you could give. Um, I, I don't think that's true. I think that's the like absolute, you know, to the Milky Way generous assessment of her. And so I think there's a lot more democracy that can be done in our community. We have really civically engaged folks. We have great neighbors. We have um, just a really lovely, welcoming community that's growing and changing. And yet we have leadership that sits in sort of the old strongman model of Alder, where it's like, I'm going to give you a trash can. Don't ask me any questions about what I do when I go downtown. 
Um, but you know, they just put like a nice lady face on it. Um, it's all like, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. So I'm running because I love democracy because in my efforts for participatory democracy and community organizing in the community that I live in, right? I've been all over the city doing all kinds of things, but I want to bring this home. Uh, myself, my neighbors, Keith Gallagher, um, lots of other folks come and they hit this wall. And when leadership doesn't amplify the work that people do, then what do we have it for? So that's kind of my take on it. The 39th Ward is on the northwest side of the city. Uh, the northern border is Devon. It kind of follows, it goes out on the very, very far west part to Nagel. And then it sort of comes down with Elston and the highway. Um, it does a little cookie cutter thing um, along the side with Albany Park. It juts out across the river into a section that used to be 40 Budlong Woods. And then it comes back up and um, I guess kind of closes that circle with sort of Peterson Park. Um, and it's a, it's a neighborhood of communities. So one of the things that I stumble on a lot is I say things like many main streets, but on the back of our lit, we call out those communities individually because the 39th ward is a, is a set of political boundaries. And we could go down a whole rabbit hole about how those boundaries get drawn and redrawn, but inside it, there are all kinds of communities, Mayfair, North Mayfair, Peterson Park, Sockmash, Edgebrook, Albany Park, um, Norwood Park, lots of parks, lots of forest preserves. Um, and it's important to acknowledge that as the fundamental building block of what makes a ward and what makes democracy in the ward. Yeah, and uh, it's, again, if folks who are not uh, really familiar with Chicago, just think the northwest side of Chicago heading out to O'Hare. If you're really not familiar with Chicago, we have a lot of listeners from out of town. Uh, so that's where it is. Uh, a lot of single family homes. Uh, and my guess is, and correct me if I'm wrong, a primary concern of people uh, when they think about city government is in general, uh, are their property taxes. That would be my guess. And the crime and policing and schools, uh, I don't know, in that particular order. But property taxes, my guess would be uh, sort of a number one concern. Am I wrong about that? Am I being unfair or inaccurate to the constituents of the 39th Ward? So I think public safety gets talked about more. But one of the things that I think is really helpful in opening the door to the kind of leadership that I want to have and why you might want somebody who goes by the nickname, the budget raccoon representing you, is that property taxes are a great way to show how very, very local kitchen table issues connect with the stuff that's happening downtown. And that that old school argument of, oh, you know, have somebody who's focused on the ward or have some activist legislator, Alder, who doesn't care about you and is just, you know, doing whatever, is a false dichotomy. And property taxes are a great way to, to thread that. And so I was in front of a chamber of commerce earlier this week, really talking about how when you think about a small business owner, a lot of people put a mortgage on their house to, to buy that property. When a big corporation like Amazon or, you know, the old post office gets some crazy old tax break, you get hit in your home, you get hit in your business. And citywide, we up here in residential communities are getting hit hard. And I'm not saying that Class A office space and all that stuff doesn't matter. But I think people want to know if you elect someone to represent you, how can we trust that each alder is representing the 50 to 60,000 people in the unique community? Because we are a, you know, a city of neighborhoods, a city of communities. And when my alder is sitting next to me on, on stage at the Forum of the Irish American Heritage Center and talking about concerns about downtown and property taxes um, for office buildings, while we have folks here who are really struggling, we have a lot of um, you know retired public sector workers here. We have North Park Village, which has a lot of low-income seniors, we have a lot of young families. We have a lot of just, you know, working folks for whom their home is not just where they live, it's it's the their wealth, it's everything that they have. It's their it's their place and their stability and their safety in the community. I want to hear people talking about that. So it concerns me a lot. But it also opens the door for me to, you know, sit and make like bar graphs with my hands at the door. And people love that, right? People say that people don't love that. And I don't know why people don't want to talk with you about tips all the time. But people really do. Well, okay. Uh, I could tell you why. And uh, so we're going to get a little uh, abstract here. Uh, but this was explained to me many years ago by a daily budget uh, person. And I was on a TIF crusade. Uh, I think 
this guy was not even in uh, office anymore. He was no longer the uh, budget person. He just, he said, I have to meet this, this guy who is obsessed with TIFFs uh, because there was nobody else that had that obsession. And so a mutual acquaintance brought us together for bagels on a rainy Saturday afternoon. And I still remember this very well. Tips and uh, bagels. Yes. Tips oh, my like, goodness, wow, man. And coffee. And <laughs> it was a great day. Uh, and if I could paraphrase what this wise young man said, because he was a young man, uh, he told me, he says, it was, I, and I've used this line ever since, people don't want to know the truth. It's like almost out of like that scene where uh, Jack Nicholson and uh, Tom Cruise in that movie, A Few Good Men. <laughs> don't want to know the truth. And the truth is, is government costs money. And if you're honest with people and you tell them the truth, that government costs money and this is what it will cost you, uh, then there's a chance they'll get be outraged. And they won't, uh, they'll turn against you because if they don't see a direct benefit to the money they're spending, uh, then they're likely to rebel. Uh, and the TIF program, to him, it was just money. Like the mayor would say, we need to spend X millions of dollars on this project, that project, get me the money. And the TIF is the easiest way to get money because it raises property taxes and doesn't tell people they're raising property taxes. So all these aldermen year after year vote for new TIF districts without telling people they raise property taxes. Your property tax bill doesn't tell you they're raising property taxes. The official position of the city of Chicago is that because it's not a levy, it doesn't raise property taxes, even though that's a completely misleading statement intended to take advantage of the ignorance of people who don't even know what a levy is. So they're drawing a distinction about something that nobody knows. And since they don't know, they just sort of go along with it. Well, if they said it in the Sun Times, it must be true. And so the bottom line of all that, Denali, was, Ignorance is bliss as far as city leaders are concerned, because the more ignorant the public is, the easier it is to spend their money. And that is why we don't have anything remotely resembling like transparency in the city of Chicago when it comes to tips and property taxes, because they want to keep people clueless, dumb, and easier to control. Now that is my oh, the interpretation. I don't, the so, what year was that? What oh. year is that? Oh, God, dear. wow, that's a tough. Uh, it was sometime in the O's. The okay, early, you know that was in the O's. This is really oh. important because that preceded a certain phase of efficiency. There was this idea that the public sector could learn from the private sector and they could become more efficient. They'd be better able to provide services. And there was this idea of a customer service government, and that's not what government is. Right. Because one of the things that's really hard for people to understand is that there are certain things we have to provide at scale. Right. You can't pave the road outside your house. You can't do that. Right. And that's my whole government is what we do together. There's certain things that have to be collectively provided. And there are certain things where we get more bang for our buck. Right. And so sometimes I tell people like it's the Costco model of things. Right. We need public schools. Public schools are a way that we can educate our kids at scale efficiently to bring more money in. But also it's it's a service, right? It's a collective investment that we make. And it's better for it to be done for all of us together than for us to have to, I don't wanna say worry about it or bother with it, but we're offered a different way to participate in it. And so I, I think that that was this view about efficiency that started at that point in time, right? If you look at the way that the economy was, if you look at um, a lot of the really big public sector cuts, welfare reform that happened in the 90s, everybody was just like, we're going to slim down government. And what happened was they just cut all the public benefits, right? Like I'm a public administration scholar and public administration is about maximizing the public benefit. Efficiency is about dollars in and dollars out. And public benefit doesn't come in the moment that you invest it. And it often isn't measured in dollars. And so Throughout this, this conversation, you're going to hear about, you know, my early midlife crisis where it totally blew my life up after my, <laughs> I, I got pregnant during the pandemic and I had a baby and all of this other stuff happened. But I quit my job last year in January to start a public sector measurement company precisely because I was really tired of 24-year-olds 20, from the big four coming in with really good haircuts, you know, <laughs> before they go to, before they go to like help the Russians, you know, scam people on oil, just being like, well, actually, this is how we make education efficient. And I was like, you are nuts, 
right? And one of the things that I tell people is I briefly worked in the New York City Controller's office and, you know, we were right down the street from Wall Street. These guys would roll up with like their skinny ties and their like really fitted suits that are supposed to make them look like they have good bodies. And we had these old guys, these old grizzled guys, 44 wide chest jackets. They would come up and these guys would say, here's what we got to do with the city pension fund. And those guys would just sit there and listen. And then they would say no. And then they would go back to the audit department. Because public sector finance people know that public benefit is public wealth. And they don't want to take public pensions, which are people's security and safety in their, you know, their final years and intergenerational wealth and like put it into some crazy Ponzi scheme, right? And I think that that's the push-pull. And so the time period that you're talking about is when efficiency thinking, tech bros, like, God help them data people, right? Because people are like, oh, she's a data person, um, <laughs> right? Um, came in and they had this idea, we can get the best of both worlds. We can place private sector thinking to public services. And the way that I explain that best of both worlds is that we got the worst of both worlds. So like, tell me what all your favorite pizza toppings are. I will write them down and then I'll put them on an ice cream sundae and force you to eat it. Like, it's just not doing the thing. Because you're cutting services, so you're not operating systems at scale. You're stripping them down into systems of last resort. They go into fiscal spirals. You're putting the burden of other people on sort of scraping and scheming and scamming to try to find, you know, the house next to the school that you want to go to, the this, the that, the other thing. We could just make everything good. Like we actually can. There are economies of scale. But even beyond that, when you focus on maximizing public benefit, you get what you pay for and you can actually feel it in your day-to-day -day life. And I don't know if people would still feel resentful about it. Maybe. It's it's a walk, right? It's not a pragmatic walk. It's not a, oh, people can't handle this, but it's a negotiation. It goes back to that idea of democracy. But I think that the idea that people don't want to know where their money goes um, it's partly because people are really stressed, right? We're all really traumatized. We're all a bunch of shelter dogs after the last couple of years that we've had. But it's like going into your garage and saying, today's the day I'm going to find out what's in my garage. Yeah. And I think you want the nicest, well, I'm not the nicest person, but you want a person who has a lot of energy, enthusiasm, empathy, and their own experiences and a history of talking and listening to people to be the person to go into you know, your garage or the public budget or whatever it's going to be with you. That's a person that I want to be. Wow. Well, that uh, that would be unique for the Chicago City Council. And uh, I say this as a guy who's been studying the city councils in action since the 80s. Uh, I'm thinking there has never been in the a Chicago. A raccoon? Yeah. Now, okay, <laughs> you say that, but explain that nickname. Go ahead. You said that one, uh, wrote it down. Now explain that nickname. So, um... I don't know if you've ever if you've ever been close to a raccoon. I do not advise it. Uh, they're very smart, but they have these creepy little human-like hands and these, you know, I'm, I'm making all these great faces that people can't see. But it's the glee in pawing around in your garbage, right? And so these things that nobody wants to look at make me really happy, right? I also say public finance crab because I just get very angry do this a lot. Um, but, you know, there is like a there, there's an Oscar the Grouch style enthusiasm that I have about these things because they're the artifacts of how we work together. And there's so much power in them. And so, you know, I think I think the the gruffness works for you. But the real enthusiasm and excitement and like, that's how I take care of people, right? I, you know, I, I do a decent job as a mom. I almost was late to this interview because I had to run a pair of clean pants up to the school. But the way that I take care of people in the public space is by knowing these things and not serving them or saying like, don't worry, I got this, is bringing them along, right? Saying you do your part, you're great at a bunch of things and I'm terrible at, but this is the one thing I do, you know, I have a very particular set of skills. Um, let's go out and do something with it. Well, I can tell you right now, I'm thinking back uh, to all the aldermen I've ever known. God, that sounds like that Julio Iglesias song. Uh, <laughs> all the You're, aldermen I've ever... <laughs> all of your references are so spot on with me, and I find I, this really, really funny. You yelled at me about Ed Sullivan. Did I? 
You did. Oh, yeah. I didn't think you knew him and you knew him. Uh, that's correct. That was a conversation that took place on the phone, ladies and gentlemen. So no need to go back there. But anyway, all the aldermen I've ever known. I remember young Scotty Wagusback, who's now the finance chair, uh, and him really trying to understand TIFFs. Uh, and he would, like, th- th- two geeks on a phone. It wasn't even interviews. You know, I wasn't officially interviewing him. This is when, in, like, his first or second term, uh, and we would be on the phone late at night talking TIFFs, how they work, uh, and uh, just getting into, like, the inner workings of government and how the daily administration was absolutely deceiving people and manipulating data, and then Ron picked it right up. Uh, and I don't have those conversations with Scotty since he, he's become finance chair. When you become finance chair and you're part of the mayor's team, you're in a whole different league and kind of been swallowed up by, uh, you know, the beast and so whatever. So I don't have that relationship with him anymore. But he was pretty much the only guy that was like really trying that, you know, alderman, I should say, older woman, really trying to understand. I've since gotten a few conversations with Leslie Harrison. I'm like, oh, she's pretty smart, too. She understands how TIFFs work. You get what I'm saying? Um, but most aldermen and older women that I've seen don't care, don't know, don't, they just, it's a script that they read. Uh, they say, they, like in t- cases of property taxes, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to fight against property taxes. I'm against property taxes. Uh, and, uh, then every year they vote for a TIF and that raises property taxes. I mean, it's, it's like, and then they'll have a debate over the budget and they'll vote no on the property tax hike tax hike, follow me on this one, Denali, that uh, the increased levy will cause, because I'm looking out for the taxpayers, but they'll vote for the TIF, which just raises the rates. So it's, again, it's like there's someone to stand up at a city council meeting and say, you just voted uh, against this budget, but you voted for the TIF. Makes no sense at all. If you're going to pretend to be an advocate for uh, the taxpayers, at least be a consistent advocate. At least tell folks the truth. The true cost. What are you paying for? What are you getting, right? Like my dad always jokes about, um, you know, the little thing on the bottom of your receipt at the grocery store that says, how much did you save? And so, you know, obviously you spend more, you save more, but you want to know what you're paying for. And by the way, I was going to say, my most successful way of explaining tiffs to people in under 10 seconds is, remember the movie, There Will Be Blood? Yeah, absolutely. where he goes, I drink your milkshake, right? That's it. That's what a tip is. <laughs> Done. Next question. So anyway, uh, so if you do get elected, would you be willing to play that role? Absolutely. Right. I think that part of having a new class of alders coming in all together is that each of us is committed to the vision right, of, a, of an improved, strengthened, expanded public sector because we're in recovery. Um, and sort of like, you know, and preemptive mitigation for whatever the next massive whatever is going to be, right? We're trying to rebuild a resilient city. And I think there are a lot of things that that I talk about as like second order characteristics of a, of a budget. So like balanced yes, no is really easy to see from the numbers. But I want to think about things like sustainability, resilience, and this idea of slack, right? Do we have space? Because there's this, this term, I'm it's a silly term, but then I'm going to break down, but called countercyclical demand for services, which is when things are really bad in the private sector, people need the public sector to step up. And so when you hear about a lot of public-private partnerships, it's going to be like the private sector's riding high, the public sector should throw in with them. And you need a, there's there's a problem then when you shift all the risk to economic cycles that that are dominated by what's happening in the private sector government needs to stand tall and stand strong so that when things fall apart there's somewhere for people to go because you know in the case of a pandemic or an economic crash we can't stand all those things up right away and again this is another thing that i remember from working in government during during the 2000s is there were a lot of people who look at that as inefficiency and if you take that term inefficiency and, and move it a little to the side, it becomes redundancy. And then you put a positive gloss on it, which is slack. We have the capacity to take care of people when they cannot take care of themselves. That's it. That's the job. And so when you cut that, you cut the ability to do the job. We got to do the job. That's what we're here for. All right. Uh, we have the capacity to take care of people when they t- take care of themselves. Uh, that wins 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 me over when you I hear you say that. 
How do you think that plays in the 39th war? Right. Go ahead. So I think the issue is, right. I spend a lot of time as, as, a, as a researcher and people assume that because I love numbers and administrative data analysis, that that was the bulk of my work. The bulk of my work was qualitative research, which is you go and you spend a lot of time in a community with people in the community, um, building an evidence base um, around programs like violence intervention, uh, working on things like public sector improvements to things like the child welfare system or the juvenile justice system or the education system. One of the first um, academic things I ever wrote was about the right classroom conditions for teaching sex ed in high school. Uh, I sat through a lot of high school sex ed classes to figure out what works. Uh, it was mortifying. And I figure if I could do that, I could run for alderman. Um, but after that kind of research, right, you learn how the things on the page connect with the things in people's lives. And so in the 39th Ward, it's really easy for folks to say, okay, you're talking about affordable housing, you're talking about someone else. You're talking about the idea of like other people who will come to our community and bring their needs and bring their problems, et cetera. And, you know, I will keep subtly referencing Bring Chicago Home throughout this interview. You guys can like keep track of it at home, turn it into a drinking game, but we gotta bring that issue home. You know, today I drove by an apartment building that somebody I know lives in who is struggling right now um, financially. There are, you know, I think that I say often is like there is an empty seat on the park bench next to me for a woman who had to leave our community because of affordability issues like we are losing our people. And there's I think it was Catherine May, she's a, she's a writer, but was talking about the parable of the ant and the grasshopper. And we think that some people are ants and some people are grasshoppers. Right. But the truth of the matter is that throughout our lives, we are both. And in our time of need. Right. Somebody did for us. And that happens. You go knock on someone's door and they were like, well, it wasn't always this way with people asking for handouts. But I remember <laughs> when I first. No, I mean, it happens. And so you say, right, like we all have ups and downs. I spent two to three years working on this consumer finance research project um, to help credit unions better serve underserved populations and build wealth. And I followed 20 ish people and families. Some of them are undocumented. Some of them are low income. A lot of them had taken on high interest debt, like payday loans and stuff. And a handful of credit unions tried this experiment where they paid off the loans right away and replaced them with a lower interest loan. And my job was to talk to these people every couple of months about how their lives were different, their spending, their feelings, their choices, because they didn't have high interest debt hanging over them. And that taught me a lot about how risk shows up in everyone's day-to-day -day life. So what I would say about that is to, to people in the 39th Ward, the issues as people say them, right? Affordable housing, that's really important. But housing affordability, people go, yeah, my house isn't affordable. Property taxes, right? What you get versus what you give. Um, public safety. You know, you talk about these things and they are universal. And you just have to bring them home for people. And spending a lot of time talking about how they show up in people's lives and then saying like, you know, I, I, did, I did the work on this and I see that this worked or this didn't work or this is what I observed, can you interpret it for me in the context of your own life? It's incredibly empowering to people. And that's what they want. They don't wanna to have to be government. They don't wanna say, well, what do you think I should do with property taxes? They wanna say, we could do this, this, and that. It'll look like this for you. You'll pay more, but get more. Or you know what, like first things first, let's go after Amazon. Yeah. Um, and they'll be like, cool, sign me up. Yeah, by the way, uh... The uh, that's a great riff. Um, you go on these great riffs. I take I these learned, notes. I learned and I, from the best. I, and then I, I, <laughs> I, I kind of like like there's like I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold off on it. This is a totally different show. I'll bring you back. But the notion, uh, the right way to teach sex ed, and I just immediately started thinking of uh, Ron DeSantis uh, and don't say gay, which is a topic we have on the show a lot. Uh, I tell my kids about. never to have sex with Ron DeSantis. <laughs> Well, that's good advice. Uh, that'll get you through life. That's like knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them. Um, but uh, so, yeah, that, I'll hold back on uh, going down the Ron DeSantis path. And we'll do that another time. Um, but it but, is connected to creeping fascism. Yes. And pluralism and secular democracy. So, again, throwing in a plug there for pretending to it? our democracy. What? Let's go there. Just <laughs> go. Why, draw that connection between creeping uh, Ron DeSantis, don't say gay. And of course, the, the one that we've been talking about all week, uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, don't teach African-American history. 
Most of oh, yeah. African American history, unless I write the history. Oh, that's what we need. African history, American history written by Ron DeSantis. Uh, you know, slavery wasn't bad. Uh, so um, talk about it. Yeah. So so part of the reason we're doing this India Republic Day celebration tomorrow, my parents were both born in the geographic region that is now covered by India, but neither was born in the political entity that is now India. And I think that a lot of the reason that I, I know democracy is hard, I know that we we always live in an uneasy but productive peace and we have to be sort of lovingly exasperated with each other is because my parents come from two different cultures, two different religions, two different native languages, two very, very different parts of a country that is you know, not a monolith. And then they moved here and my parents dated for um maybe like two or three months before they got married. Uh, my mom is in the kitchen right now. So like, I can't talk about this too loudly. Um, but, but India is like one time zone. And my mom comes from the the far west and my dad comes from the far east. And they've been married for about 52 years. And they still fight about what time the sun sets, even though they've been living in the same house. And so for me, that is that is a beautiful thing, right? Like, that's how I grew up. So it's it's important to me, right? And my, my mom is is a Catholic, a very devout Catholic. I am a very religious Catholic. My father is a lapsed Hindu and was a student organizer and um, you know, socialist communist. And that diversity, right? That ability for them to connect with so many other people. And they came here. My parents came here in 1971. My dad got a, a graduate scholarship and was at UC Berkeley. So my parents were just like, here we are in America. I guess it's Berkeley in the 70s. Which is a really weird place to show up in America. Yes. Um, and that really connects this idea that democracy is this participatory project. And so what's what's going on in India right now is very similar to what's going on here. And and there's there's a guy, um, his name is Pushkar Sharma. He does this really, really well. And I'm not going to do a great job of it. But he talks about how it's really easy to help people understand what's going on with global democracy by just giving them analogies. And so in India, there's a law, there's a rise of what's called Hindu nationalism. And it is about tying together religion and culture and expectation and citizenship and saying this is a country with an unspoken national religion, right? That's really similar to what's happening with, with Ron DeSantis. And it's really similar with what's happening with a lot of folks who are trying to to tell you that this is a Christian nation of Christian values. What's different about the formation of the Indian Republic and the American Republic is like all those dudes in wigs were like, I'm from Philadelphia, I'm from Virginia. But when, when you know, India was formed as a political entity, um, it was within the lifetime of lots of people. It was within the lifetime of, you know, my father, not my, yes, it was in the lifetime of both my parents. And there was this work. People were different religions, different languages, different expectations. And they came to this idea that the only way that we can live together is for each and every one of us to truly and fully be ourselves, but then to also allow each other that space. And that's really like, like it's not libertarianism because that's bullshit. Oh, you can we? swear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the something podcast. else, right? It's, yeah. Yeah, but my mom is still in the kitchen. Um, but it's giving each other that space and that respect and knowing that like sometimes, you know, I, I need to lead on this issue because I have a great perspective on it from where my family came from. But sometimes, you know, uh, a colleague and friend and amazing person on our campaign who's veteran spoke to us at length last night about veterans issues in Cook County in Chicago. And he knows it in depth. So like he's going to step up and I'm going to say, how do I get behind you with everything I know and I can do? And that way we can be all day, every day without like buying into hustle culture or a lot of this other crap. And so, you know, going back to this amazing T-shirt that my mother bought me, um, just so you know, it's a ripoff of what appears to be a ripoff of the monkeys logo. It says Goa rocks on it. It's where my mom is from. And there's a setting sun that may or may not be a mango. Yeah. <laughs> it does look like the monkeys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's yeah. I, I don't know where she got it, but it's it's, it's really a great bootleg thing. So Goa has some of the best beaches in the world. And the thing that I've said on the campaign before, because we are we have one employee, right? But otherwise, we're all volunteer nights and weekends, working parents. I mean, if anyone knows how to make extra hours in the day, it's a working mother. But I like to say, like, the most relentless place in the world is the beach because the waves never stop coming. 
And we don't have to be like, you know, again, I, I love to pick on tech bros. Can you tell? Uh, we don't have to be like eating food out of tubes, trying to have 2% body fat and run straight up a mountain, right? Like the work is much longer than that. My grandmother outlived the queen. It was amazing. Um, you know, in, in my culture, we have had a long, strows, slow struggle against colonialism and like a little, literal extraction of our natural resources in, you know, to to enrich the royal family and, and England and everything like that. And the best revenge in a world like that is to take care of yourself, to take care of your people, to take care of your community and make sure that, you know, the next generation is set up because the queen will die um, eventually, right? Or like the, you know, colonialism will end, the monarchy will end and you'll get your chance to sit at the table and write your constitution. Uh, and uh, if all goes well for you, you'll get your chance to sit at the table in the Chicago City Council uh, and talk about TIFs and property taxes uh, and alternatives to property taxes, which we haven't even got into. Uh, I, I noted the other day, I had a little fun with this, uh, Brandon Johnson, uh, who is the, pretty much the lefty in the race, uh, came out with a, uh, a whole... Uh, uh, group of suggested alternatives to the property tax. And of course, uh, it was this being Chicago, he was immediately assailed uh, by everyone who will also be denouncing any rise in the property taxes. Uh, so it was all sorts of, a, uh, what would I call it? An uh, exercise in ignorance, when you look at it in its totality, uh, an exercise in contradictions, uh, and again, the perpetuation of what I was talking about earlier, where you're just fooling and bamboozling uh, the public uh, in the hopes of just moving on. Um, ben, I'm ungovernable, but I'm not undisciplined. So we can move on to the next topic. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're focused. Uh, so running out of time. So it, it's funny. No, we didn't get to have one. the public safety conversation. That was what we're yeah. supposed to talk about. The what conversation? We're supposed to talk about public safety. Yes. I was just yeah. about to say, we're running out of time. You began by saying public safety is the number one issue. And here we are. We spent all this other time talking about what I think are really important issues, which is whether your government is lying to you. Okay. And whether you, when you go to the city council, you want to be part of that lie. So I think that's a very important issue. This is me speaking, not the. Oh, number. yeah. I know. I mean, what I was going to say is I like I was also going to talk to you about like disinformation 101, where like even the mail that I'm getting as a constituent from my opponent. Right. Like I always tell people, like, is if there's a chart or a graph, does it have a label? Does it have a legend on it? Right. She does this thing where she'll put a quote up top and then put something there. And all these things are labeled and there's implication <laughs> that she did these things versus was around while they were happening. <laughs> and it's. It's real. I mean, it's, you know, it's like James Baldwin said, right? Like it's, it's funny, but it's terribly sad. Yeah. Or like you think about Donald Trump, like it's a joke, but it's not funny Yeah. Uh, because it's so transparent and it's so bad. It's so bad. Then. Uh, all right. Public safety. Public safety. Yeah. Uh, and uh, right now, yeah, somehow or other that uh, has emerged as the number one issue wherever I go, even in neighborhoods that are safe, quote unquote relative to other neighborhoods, which is an interesting concept that people are very scared about public safety or they feel compelled to talk about public safety, even though it's not really part of their consciousness. If you follow what I'm like, they walk down the street at night, they, they won't even, you know, but they're, I'm concerned about public safety. I want a police officer. So it's an interesting uh, situation we're at in the city of Chicago right now. So well, I don't know. your perception of your ability to move freely. And so there's like a couple of moving pieces with that. And there's there's a couple of survey questions that actually all CPS students take about their perceived safety on their way to and from school. And if you map it out and you sort of cross it with, um, you know, community violence, there's not a clear emergent pattern. And that's because public safety is the water, the water you swim in. And so you're very attuned to a couple of different things. You're attuned to micro changes, right? So I like to say violence in the community is violence to the community. So if there is, there's gunfire down the street from my house and no one comes to talk to me about that, no one resolves that with me and processes that trauma with me, or I don't have a way of understanding what happened, I walk around thinking it's going to happen again. Therefore, I'm less safe. I've changed my perception of how I move about in my community. That being said, if your typical expectation is that you've changed your routines and habits because you live somewhere where there is a lot of gunfire, you, you've changed your life and you've sort of made it smaller and lesser. And that was a lot of what I used to deal with with young people. Um, but you may perceive yourself as safer because you've done something proactively to manage your environment. 
And so it really, there, there really is no direct linear correlation or whatever you want to call it between how safe your neighborhood is on paper with respect to violent crime or property crime or anything and your own perception of safety. It's all relative. It's relative to you. It's relative to changes in your environment. Um, and it's kind of relevant to how you see and perceive need. And so when people ask me a question about public safety, I think a lot of folks immediately get into either an aggressive or a defensive stance about policing. Mm. But I want to talk about public safety. I want to talk about how freely and fully people believe that they can move about and exist in their communities. And how do people in the 39th Ward, from what you can tell, think about that? So I think one of the things that's that's helpful is talking about incidents of violent crime in our community because there are more in our community and there are more in the city and there have been more over the last couple of years um where they were not a perpetrator victim or direct witness but it happened in close proximity to them and you know as somebody again who was an interviewer like i asked them to sit with that and to describe what that is and if there is currently anything that's aimed at that collective level or aimed at that. And, you know, something that I told you, I'm a, I'm a survivor of, of violent gun crime. When I was about three years old, my family was in a hostage situation, taken hostage by terrorists, and it ended in a, in a shootout. Um, and so I don't have a lot of memories from before violent crime disrupted my life, but also disrupted my family system. You know, we came back and people said little kids are really resilient. And so you just like never talk about it. <laughs> which is a wild thing to do. But, you know, again, back then it was it was considered the best thing we could do. So my entire life has been about rebuilding a sense of safety and predictability. And I can say from my own experiences and share those with people that having more information is better than less. Yeah. Finding more ways to have control is better than less, not control in the sense of like, I need to see a policeman on every corner, but like autonomy and self-determination. And so when I see opportunities for civilian control of public safety, be that civilian oversight of the police department or just civilians and citizens being able to direct resources, I know that that is actually a very, you know, kind of like a trauma-informed financial practice is the ability to say, hey, like we're doing this together. We're being consulted and we're being informed because people don't like to feel like victims. Right. It's a very clear choice of mine to say that I am a survivor of violent crime and not a victim of violent crime. And that's what people need more of. And I think, again, if you want to talk about, you know, you, you talked about that Alder dance with property taxes and finance. There's this idea, right? Like my my opponent is sending out mailers that say you're safer with Sam. And I think about how to debunk that, because I don't want to say to people, well, violent crime is on the rise. So you're not safer with Sam. I mean, to my knowledge, she is not going around, you know grabbing liquor stores or anything like that. But I want to talk about why that's the promise that's being made and whether that's what people actually want and need. Because people are really smart and they know their own hearts, but sometimes they don't know what's on the table. Well, I, okay, so if I can break down uh, how aldermen and alderwomen people are safer, say what a kind of, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just so bizarre. Um, it's just, it's, it's to the crime realm what voting against uh, a tax levy is when uh, raising tax levy and then voting for the TIF. It's just it's taking money. menu money and spending it on police cameras. And one of the things I said at the forum is like, I don't think you're going to make us safer by treating us all like criminals. Like, right. You know, I, I don't think that those are the things that we're crying out for, especially when she voted against ECPS. We have great candidates in the 17th district. We're in the 17th and the 16th police district. Um, oh, I, I have to do this. A, B, Steve. You got to vote for A, B, Steve. Anyway, am I allowed uh, to plug people? Uh, yeah. And then my, uh, <laughs> my favorite songs from the 60s. Uh, so, uh, but, but, but the point with ECPS is that yeah. brings people who are accountable to the community, to civilians, mm -hmm. gives them civilian oversight into the police department, but also just three more trained people to talk and listen about collective community, police district level conversations. And if you think about why the district, that's the administrative level, right? That's funding, that's staffing. Those are the levers the government can actually move. It's not perfect. But I don't understand why, if you want to make people safer, that this would not be like an, an easy sell for you. Yeah. Well, OK. So, I mean, just think about it, the camera thing. Uh, so 
the notion that cameras will make you feel safer, uh, will make you safer, uh, is linked to the idea that a criminal will not commit a crime if there's a camera around recording him or her committing the crime. I know of no study that has ever showed that. It's certainly contradicted by everything that's been happening in the city of Chicago over the last four years. There's cameras freaking everywhere in the city of Chicago and crimes going up. So it's sort of like uh, what, what I mean, there's the deterrence argument. And then there's the if and when it happens, we will be able to find the person afterwards. But again, like that's not necessarily the justice and the restoration that survivors or, or people who have you know, experienced harm or loss through crime are looking for. Well, it, it also gets at, this is where I tie it to the property tax hoax. Uh, it, it's like nobody is studying or analyzing what our police are doing and whether we are doing, we have an effective plan or an idea or a strategy or if we, it, it, are we just clueless. And there was a debate, uh, a fierce debate. And we, I, we talk about this on the show all the time between Raymond Lopez, the alderman of the 15th Ward, and Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Uh, and it occurred it, right in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder when there was rioting going on in Chicago. And Ray Lowe was demanding that Mayor Lori Lightfoot explain what her strategy was when she had the bridges raised. Uh, and did that uh, send rioting into neighborhoods like his? And she cussed him out. Instead of engaging him, she cussed him out and, and it was recorded. I don't know who recorded it, but somebody recorded released it. We, we played it endlessly on this show. <laughs> we played it endlessly because it was a funny exchange on one level. To quote your, uh, uh, your Donald Trump line, it's a joke, but it's not funny. It was kind of a funny exchange, but it also was very revealing. Mm-hmm. And what it revealed is that our leaders were nowhere near on the same page. We're not working together. We're not putting their minds together about a very serious problem. Uh, It was all personal. It was kids in a cafeteria in high school. That's what they were. And the city was incredibly vulnerable. And somehow that that really tense moment passed. And we've kind of moved on from it to a certain degree. But I can't think of anything anybody in this city did to make it safer in Chicago, to be wiser and more strategic uh, about how police interact with citizens, uh, et cetera. And so we learned nothing from it, in my humble opinion, Denali. Uh, All it gave us was a funny sound bit uh, of Raylo and asking a very serious question. And I criticize him a lot, but I got to give him credit. It was a serious question that he posed to Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and she did not give it a serious response. And that's where we are, in my humble opinion, when it comes to policing. So I think what you need to do when you have people on the show is to ask them what they think the job of the police is. And so you can have some people say public safety, you can have some people say law enforcement, you can have some people say solving crime. But just ask people to list out, right, first responders, right? You just ask them to list out everything that they think either the police do or the police should do. And you'll see that there's not a single circle. There's a lot of things. And so, again, my public safety argument has always been if there are a diverse array of urgent safety needs, then we need as many tools as we can have, right? All day, every day. Let's be relentless. Um, Not just kind of like, let's get a bigger and bigger hammer. Um, And, you know, this is something that we talked about and that comes back to the Cop Academy, um, my son is in CPFTA, Chicago Police and Fire Training. And I think we talk we talk a lot, like no conversation I will ever have to have in public will be as hard as the conversations that I have inside my house. Um, but my son is a young black man. He's 17 years old. He told me that I could talk about him. Uh, <laughs> and he wants to keep people in community safe. And he said, I want to keep people in community safe. It's a commitment of mine. It's something that, you know, is a commitment that I share with his family. And mom and dad told me I need to have a pension um, because they have not been doing a great job of saving money. And so with those two things, being a police officer is what makes sense to me. And when I talk about police reform with him, it's a much deeper 
level, partly because I talk about public administration and how to improve public systems. But when somebody is like, what about body cams? What about this? What about that? I'm like, that's procedural at a certain level. We need to think about procedural at a different level. And so for him, you know, again, right, like I challenge him twice a week. He comes home at 7, 730 at night and I sit down and I say, what's going to happen? Right. For me, when I think about reforming the police department, as long as the, you know, the FOP as it has existed is exerting its powers in this particular way to shape the culture of the department. Uh, what is going to happen when you show up on day one and everyone is not necessarily on the same page about whether a proud boy should be your supervisor? Um, I think that's really important. And that's my stake in the police department as a mother. Right. But it's also my stake in the police department as, you know, a citizen, as a taxpayer, as someone who's really, really concerned about children and families and communities. I think there's an idea and the mayor is really guilty of this. Um, you know, I publicly called her a coward and I will continue to do so of this idea that you can grasp for control. And if you want to talk about the cafeteria, I mean, think about all the kids having a food fight and lunch monitor thinking that just screaming is going to help. <laughs> Uh, you know, screaming about her D-I-C-K is going to help. Yeah. Uh, I have little kids, so I still spell. <laughs> um, and you uh -huh. cannot control people in that way, right? Like, it's just, you know, I think, again, right, like, as a survivor of violent crime, like, you get to the brink where you look at the issue the way that it is. You look at it truthfully through the lens of your experiences and other people's experiences, and you say, I know it feels really safe to have this idea that we can control what other people do before they do it. But the only way to do that is to learn and grow and work together, right? It's the slow way. We can't magically just force change on people. And if we we want to say that, if we want to use that to get elected, I don't think that we should be leaders, right? We got to build people's trust enough that we can say and do that and have the hard conversations because at the end of the day, like, it's not always on the alder, it's on the people in the community, and if they think they're getting one thing and then they're getting another and it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse, right? At some point, you just, you, you stop playing, right? You say, I'm just going to stay home. Everything sucks. I don't want to be part of this anymore. Yeah. Or you, like I began the show talking about chance, just get the hell out of town. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, I, I'll just close with this. Uh, the 17 year old son, I did not know uh, he wanted to be a police officer, but it's so interesting. The kid, it's like he's a chip off the old block. He's talking about pensions, being a police officer to get a pension. <laughs> I don't know thirty-year-olds who think of pensions. This kid's seventeen, and 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 you know you what? Get him on the show. He's amazing. No, I we I'm going to bring this kid on because this is true, and I say this all the time. The youngsters who now is getting mad at me. I am not a youngster. I'm not saying you're young. Oh, I thought you were talking about him. Yeah, he's no, yeah, I'm talking about him. But I'm like, guys, you're not going to be 17, 20, 25, 30 forever. If all goes well, you'll be old. And suddenly you'll realize, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? <laughs> it's like, our country is so freaking clueless on this one. But one thing I will say, we provide pensions for police, firefighters, and teachers and then we are always threatening to take them away, which is really a weird and one more contradiction, Denali. We do something the right that we should do for everybody in our country. But we do it for these three occupations in Chicago. Then we never fully fund them. Then we spend money that we're supposed to spend on those fortifying those pensions on other things. And then on pension debt. Right. I always go around this community when people complain about the cost of pensions. And I say, when you pay for a pension, you get something. Individuals get something. Communities get something. When you pay for pension debt, nobody gets. Yes. Nobody gets. No, right? the, bank, the banks do. The banks do. Uh, the banks do. And by the way, one more thing to blow your 17 year old mind with. When he becomes a police officer, if he does, and he gets that pension, which I hope he will, it'll be fortified with the revenues from a gambling casino. More evidence about <laughs> Chicago cluelessness when it comes gambling, Denali. I mean, I'm sorry. I would have voted no on the pen, a gambling casino just for that alone. Uh, which, of course, I would never be elected alderman. So what's I mean, I understand they allow dancing and women wearing pants. I mean, what next? Yeah, sorry. No, okay. It's um, <laughs> no, no. I mean, I look when people tell me a casino has revenue generation, I am always really interested in the how and the why that's and, what I'm and, and, the, and the effect size, right? How much money and and right, like how much money yes. are you going to get out of a casino versus closing some loopholes on property taxes? I mean, thank you. 
That's the yeah, that's the exact point. Uh, that's why you should elect her, ladies and gentlemen. She's thinking <laughs> a brain that works. <laughs> She's going to be unique in the Chicago City Club. No, I take that back. I have a lot of aldermen that I think things are actually. You are all playing. You're cynical and jaded. I think the aldermen and aldermen we have now, there's like a core of them, are as good as ever as we've ever had in the whole history. I'm going to say something positive. Serious thinkers and coming up with different solutions and not just being rubber stamps, uh, not just be alder dancers, which is a great line, which I will steal and use and occasionally <laughs> give you credit for. Uh, and uh, so but that's maximizing the public good, right? That's what it's going to take. Yeah. It's going to take those really smart, committed people with every single skill set working together aligned for that vision. All right. So we're out of time. So here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to spell your name and spell it slowly. Uh, <laughs> so folks really like what they hear. Uh, you know what I mean? They'll track you down and they'll listen to more of what you have to say. Uh, we have a YouTube channel with a video of the entire hour-long forum of me and the aldermen sitting next to each other and answering questions. Uh, and it's quite delicious. Uh, so my name is Denali. D-E-N-A-L-I. My website is Denali4FOR39.com. And for bonus points, I'll spell my last name. <laughs> D-A-S-G-U-P-T-A as in Parent Teacher Association because I also love school finance and governance. That's another topic. Uh, <laughs> you're going to be a regular on this show, Denali. Love it. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and uh, best of luck. All right. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been a dream come true. All right, uh, Denali. Thank you very much uh, for the kind words. Also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of all in Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Denali and Keith Kelleher will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. The D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. Science is back, baby.